Good to be with you all on this Lord's Day, and we will be finally finishing up John chapter 12 this morning. It's one of those chapters that, um, I think I said this before, that I think it can often go kind of under the radar, um, but there's so much (laughs) packed into this chapter. And in many ways, we kind of come to a very climactic point in John's gospel. Now, we remember, and I haven't said this in a while, if you go to John chapter 20, John, the apostle, gives us the reason why he wrote this whole gospel, the reason why he wrote what he wrote. He says in John chapter 20, I saw many things and I could have recorded more, but he said, I wrote these specific things for what purpose? Why? So that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the anointed servant of the Lord promised in the Old Testament, and that you might believe he is the son of God incarnate, and that by believing you might have life in his name, not just temporary, temporal life, but eternal, everlasting life. This is why John wrote this gospel. And historically, the gospel of John has kind of been divided into two parts or two books. With the first 12 chapters, we call the book of signs, where we see the seven signs of our Lord recorded in John's gospel. The last half of the book, chapters 13 through 21, are what are typically called the book of exaltation or the book of glory. And we will see at the close of chapter 12 today, the close of the book of signs, the close of the book of of signs, the final chapter in this kind of closure of our Lord's public ministry in the, his three years that he spent. And I kind of was looking at this passage this week, and it reminded me of something. It reminded me of a closing argument or a closing, um, a closing remark that you might see. That if any of you are familiar with a with a public debate or even a public trial, it's made up of a couple different parts. You have an opening argument where two sides present their case in an attempt to persuade the other side, right? The opposing argument presents their case, and then the other side presents their case using reason, logic, evidence to try to convince the other side. It begins with these opening arguments, And then there is a time of cross-examination. Witnesses are brought forward. Evidence is revealed. And there's there's a desire to ask and answer questions to to try to get to the truth of the matter. And then finally, in in the last part, it ends with what is typically called closing remarks or closing arguments, where everything that was said before is summarized and is stated again in one last attempt to convince and to persuade. And in many ways, I think this is what we've kind of seen in the first 12 chapters of John's gospel. The first chapter, or part of it, is what we call the prologue of John's gospel, where he introduces to us all these themes that he is going to develop throughout the gospel. You could call this his opening arguments. We see the pre-existence of the Word or the Son. We see Jesus as the light of the world. 
we see the contrast between light and darkness, witnesses and testimonies, Christ's glory as the glory of God, eternal life that's only found in Christ, the unbelieving world that will reject Him, and the unity and relation of the Father and the Son is all presented in the first 18 verses of John's Gospel in chapter 1. And so the rest of the book of signs is this cross-examination where witnesses are brought forward, where evidence is presented showing that Jesus is truly who he said he is. He is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. And he brings evidence and witnesses from the Old Testament. He says, Moses wrote about me. He says, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. He says that the Father is speaking to you through the Scripture. So he's presenting evidence not only in the forms of these witnesses, but also through the signs that he performs, showing that he is truly the unique Son of God. But as we've gone through John's Gospel, we've seen that there's unbelief, that the people have not accepted who Jesus says he is, whether it's the crowds of John chapter 6 that are confused They try to make him an earthly king or the Pharisees that try to arrest Jesus for healing a man. And in each case, in each sign that our Lord performs, we've seen him reveal himself for who he truly is and point to a higher spiritual reality, his true nature and glory, right? In John chapter 2, he showed he is the true temple of God's people. In John 6, we saw he is the true bread, the manna from heaven that sustains God's people on their wilderness journey. In John chapter 8, we saw he alone is the one that brings true spiritual sight to his people. And in John chapter 11, we saw he is the resurrection and the life who by his word alone can command life where there was only death. And so time after time, our Lord has tried to convince these people of who he is, right? And yet we see, and especially we saw last week, the people reject him. The opposing side does not believe. They are blind. They are hardened in heart. They will not come to our Lord. And so in the verses that we're going to look at this morning, we're going to see what I would call the closing arguments to this book of signs. The final words of our Lord's public ministry, his closing remarks in this epilogue. That all of the themes and ideas that began in the prologue and have been stated throughout our Lord's ministry are all repeated and summarized here. You find all of those themes that I mentioned brought back in these final verses. But what's unique about these is this is not one last-ditch effort of a helpless man to just try to convince people. It's not a cry of a powerless individual, a sort of shot in the dark, hoping and praying that someone will believe. But it is actually a final call and plea to a blind and hardened people, thus leaving them with no excuse for not believing Christ is who he says he is that we'll see in our passage that he truly is the Son of God who perfectly reveals the Father. The light of the world that expels the darkness, the one who came first, not in judgment, but who came to save his people from their sins by accomplishing redemption and doing all that the Father had commanded him in this covenant of redemption 
that those who believe in him have saving faith in his person and work might have life, life, eternal life in his name. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So I'm going to read our passage. I'm going to pray for us, and then we will look to God's word this morning. Let's pray. Or let's, let's read the passage first, and then I'll pray. This is the word of the Lord. And Jesus cried out and said, Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. And whoever sees me, sees him who sent me. I have come into the world as light, so that whoever believes in me may not remain in darkness. If anyone hears my words and does not keep them, I do not judge him, for I did not come to judge the world, but to save the world. The one who rejects me and does not receive my words has a judge, and the word that I have spoken will judge him on the last day. For I have not spoken of my own authority, but the Father who sent me has given me a commandment, what to say and what to speak. And I know that his commandment is eternal life. What I say, therefore, I say as the Father has told me. Let's pray this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning and we come to your word now. We come knowing that it is your word to your people. That nature is this amazing thing. Psalm 19 tells us it reveals the glory of God day and night. It pours forth speech. But it is only the word of God that is able to save us. And so we pray this morning that as we come to your word, we might see the revelation of who Christ truly is, your special supernatural revelation to us, your people, and that we would come to Christ this morning and that seeing and believing we might have life in his name, that he has revealed who you are and that you have sent him in the fullness of time, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And so we pray this morning that as we come to your word, we would come and sit under it as the authoritative word that you have spoken, and that we would come to rest in Christ this morning, not looking to our works, but to the work of the incarnate Son of God. We pray all this thing in the name of Christ, we pray. Amen. Amen. So we're going to look at three things this morning. We'll break this into three different parts. First, we'll look at, in verses 44 through 46, we're going to look at the Son who reveals. The Son who reveals. Secondly, in verses 47 through 48, we'll see the Son who is rejected. The Son who is rejected. And then finally, in our remaining verses, we'll look at the Son who redeems. The Son who redeems. So we see in verse 44... Our Lord begins with what we might say are some puzzling words. He begins in verse 44 with a seemingly contradictory statement that on the surface it even appears as a logical contradiction. 
Because what does he say in verse 44, if you want to look there with me? He says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me. (laughs) Whoever believes in me, believes not in me. Okay? What does that mean? (laughs) What is Jesus saying? Whoever believes in me, believes not in me, but in him who sent me. Is Jesus somehow contradicting himself in this first verse? Is he saying that we are to not believe in him? Is he sort of separating belief in the Son from belief in the Father? Is he separating his human nature from his divine nature? What is going on in these first verses? And the answer, he's not doing any of those things. He's not separating the Father and the Son or his human nature from his divine nature, but he is distinguishing. (laughs) He is distinguishing. And in so doing, he is making a very important statement about himself and about his person. That to believe on Christ is not to believe in a mere man, but to believe in the one who is God. (laughs) To believe in Christ is not to believe in a mere man, but to believe in the one who is God. That when Jesus says, whoever believes in me, believes not in me, he is distinguishing his human and divine natures. This is what we call, here's a, here's a big word, okay? Partitive exegesis, okay? Part of the reason, I don't like to use big words, but you should see Daryl's face light up whenever I do that. So it's, it's hard to not, Okay. Partitive exegesis, okay? All that really means is that when we come to Scripture, we need to ascribe that which is proper to the divine nature to the divine nature and that which is proper to Christ's human nature to his human nature. We need to distinguish. We don't separate. We don't pull apart, but we distinguish, okay? And I think that's the only way we can make sense of these words here. That what Jesus is saying is that the one that believes in Christ truly believes not in a merely created man, but in someone who exists beyond his human nature, right? Not someone who merely began to exist at his birth in Bethlehem, who did not exist beyond his human nature, but the one that believes in him, believes in him as the son of God beyond the flesh, the one who is and created all things. What did Jesus say in John, in John chapter 8? The one who, before Abraham was, I am. <laughs> who didn't come into existence at his birth, but eternally existed. Who is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit. That's what Jesus means when he says these words. That true saving faith terminates Not on the human nature of Christ, which is a created thing, but on His divine nature, the Son of God, equal in power and glory with the Father. This is what our Lord means with these words. I was helped by Matthew Poole, 17th century Puritan. He says this, that the true rest of a believing soul is in the triune God through Christ as mediator. That the true rest of a believing soul is not in a mere man, but is in the triune God through Christ as mediator. 
And this is the whole purpose of why the Son condescends in the incarnation. This is why the Son had to take on flesh. What does First Peter tell us? So that He might bring us to God. That He might bring us to God to reveal the work of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this is what he says in the next verse. In verse 45, he says, Whoever sees me sees the one who sent me. (laughs) Whoever sees me sees the one who sent me. This is reminiscent of what we will see in a couple chapters in John 14. Philip says to Jesus, Lord, show us the Father. Lord, show us the Father. And Jesus says to him, Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. Okay? This verse and these verses have caused some people to trip up, right? Is, is, are the persons of the Trinity just different masks that God puts on, right? That when you're looking at Jesus, you're really looking at the Father and He just put on a different mask. And then at Pentecost, He puts on a, another mask called the Holy Spirit. That's not what we're saying here. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's not, he's not saying, whoever sees me, you're really seeing the Father. What he's saying is, as the person of the Son, of the same substance, yet distinct from the Father, in taking on flesh, has revealed God to man, right? He has come for the purpose of revealing God, not to the eyes of the flesh, but to the eyes of faith. What do we read in John chapter 1? No one has ever seen God, okay? So don't read this and say, by seeing Jesus with fleshly eyes, I've seen God's nature, right? That's not what's happening here. John 1 says, no one has ever seen God. The children's catechism says, what is God? God is spirit and does not have a body, right? God is invisible. He is spirit. He does not have a body. But this one as John 1 tells us, who is the eternally begotten Son, what does it say in verse 18? He has made Him known. He has revealed Him. He has declared who God is. You could even translate it, He has exegeted Him. He has exegeted Him. Not to the physical eyes, but to the eyes of faith. So we could say it like this, It's almost as if Jesus is saying here in verse 45, whoever sees me truly for who I am as the eternal Son of God with the eyes of of faith also sees Him who sent me. And this is why He came as the light of the world. And that's what we see in verse 46. So that whoever believes in Christ and sees him with the eyes of faith and rests upon him alone for salvation, what does Jesus say? Will not remain in darkness. Will not remain in darkness. What did we read in our assurance of pardon this week? That the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ is revealed in the gospel, in what Christ has done. This is why he says, I have come into the world as light so that whoever believes in me may not remain in their darkness. But we see as we go on in our passage that there are some who indeed do remain in darkness. And that leads us to our second point this morning, the son who is rejected. 
the son who is rejected. That as we've seen in John's gospel and as we see in our passage this morning, that there are some who hear the words of life, who hear the good news of the gospel and the word of salvation and reject it. And reject it. Either in outright rejection in words, saying there's no way I could believe that, or explicit rejection in their deeds and actions. This is why our Lord says in verse 47, if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, the implication is he will be judged. That if anyone hears my words and does not keep them, will be judged. What did Jesus say in John chapter 3? Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. That these people that reject Christ, that do not receive Christ or obey his word, and in so doing, turn away from him, reject him. They don't want to come to the light. They would rather remain in their darkness. And the implication, as we see in verse 48, is that they will be judged. They are without excuse because of the light that has come into the world. We read in John chapter 1, He came to the world, but the world did not know Him. He came to His own people, and His own people did not receive Him. This, as we've talked about, is the blindness of unbelief. He came to the world that He created, and the world rejects Him. He came to His own people that were supposed to receive Him, and yet they reject him. But we see in our Lord's words that the purpose of his first coming is not to judge, but is actually to save. The purpose of our Lord's first coming is not to come in judgment, but is to come to save and to redeem. We read in John chapter 3, verse 17, right after one of the most popular verses in the Bible, for God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. That the first coming, the first advent of Christ was for the purpose of salvation. Where do we read elsewhere? The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost. He came to seek and to save that which was lost. The good shepherd that lays down his life for the sheep, the suffering servant of Isaiah 53, so that the gospel of salvation, redemption from sin might be proclaimed in all of the earth. That today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of salvation. That God is indeed patient. He is indeed patient. Don't all of us know that in this room? (laughs) That if God was to execute His justice on us after our first sin, there would be no hope for us. But God is patient and long-suffering, right? In His common grace toward all people. But as we read in Romans 2, His kindness and long-suffering is not meant to lead us to license, but to repentance. It's not meant to lead us to say, hey, I can do whatever I want. I'm not being judged. It's actually the opposite. 
His kindness is meant to lead us to repentance. Because as our Lord states here, on the last day, when the Son returns in His second coming, it will indeed be a day of judgment. A day of judgment. That the one who rejects the Son and the message of salvation will indeed be judged on that last day by the word of Christ himself. By the word of Christ himself. And so we see in our passage, yes, our Lord has come both as Savior. He has come as Savior. But he will come again as judge. To judge all things. And that day will be a day of salvation for God's people, but judgment for all those that are not found in Christ. And so we see this further in our third point this morning. In verses 49 through 50, we read of the Son who redeems. The Son who redeems. That this is all according to God's eternal plan of redemption. This is all according to God's eternal plan of salvation and redemption, what we often call the covenant of redemption. The covenant of redemption. This intra-Trinitarian plan of salvation. Eternally in the, 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 the God of the universe that the Father would send the Son to take on flesh, would accomplish redemption for His people, would be empowered by the Spirit that he might win a people for himself and earn for them eternal life. This is why the Son was sent, to redeem a people for himself, to accomplish the work of redemption, right? Not as a plan B, not as a second option of salvation, but the eternal plan of the triune God. Not to just make salvation possible, but to accomplish salvation for God's people. This is what we call the covenant of redemption. And this is what we've seen throughout John's gospel, right? Why did Jesus come? Why did He come in the incarnation? He came to accomplish redemption for God's people. There's this great passage in John chapter 4. It's right after the woman of the well, right? And Jesus says to His disciples, I love this, He says, I have food that you don't know about. And they're like, are you hiding it somewhere? Like, where's this food that you're talking about? And he says this, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food, what's going to sustain me is doing the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. What does he say in John chapter 6? For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. He came to do the will of the Father and to accomplish his work. And we come to verse 49 where we read these interesting words. He says, For I have not spoken of my own authority. Almost exactly what we see in John chapter 5 where he says, I can do nothing on my own. And that's kind of a puzzling statement, right? Similar to the first verse we read. It seems to imply that Jesus, the Son, lacks some sort of power or authority, right? 
He says, I have not spoken of my own authority, right? It's almost as if he seems lesser than the Father or almost as if he needs permission from the Father to say what he's saying. But as we've talked about, what he is saying here is that he, not that he needs permission, right, or that he's lesser than the Father, but that he does not act independent of the Father. Or as he says in other places, he acts not of his own accord, but in perfect unity, power, and will with the Father and the Spirit. As the one who is eternally from the Father, as the Nicene Creed says, begotten before all worlds, one power, one glory, one will. And in his incarnation, he obeys the Father according to his human nature and will. Or as Augustine says, that in the form of a servant, he came down to do all that the Father commanded him. In word and in deed, in will and in work, perfectly obeying what the Father sent him to do, even to the point of death upon the cross. It's very important that we see this. Not eternally submitting as the Son, right, according to his divine nature, but perfectly obeying as the incarnate Savior according to his human nature. And why did he do this? For us and for our salvation. Because we could not obey perfectly. Because we had sin that we had to answer for. This is why the Son of God came. And we read in verse 50, he says this, And I know that his commandment, this commandment from the Father, is eternal life. This commandment given to Christ by the Father is eternal life. And I think we can see those two words together, commandment and eternal life. His commandment is eternal life. What is Jesus saying here? Is this a new law that he's given his people? right? Is this a new law that our Lord is instituting? Telling everyone, if they obey enough, if they obey this commandment perfectly, then they will have eternal life. This sort of works-based covenant where they need to obtain eternal life by obeying this commandment. But we see that what's going on here as we understand this covenant of redemption that's in the background here that this is not a new law that our Lord is giving, but it's a proclamation of Christ and His obedience and His work that He will fulfill the commandment given to Him by the Father. He has earned eternal life for His people and He gives it to them not by their works, but as a gift. Not based on what they do, but the faith that comes in Christ alone. Eternal life that is only found in Him. And we can see here in these words that we need to make this important distinction, this contrast between the law and the gospel, between the covenant of works and the covenant of grace, that the law in and of itself says, obey and earn eternal life. Just do enough, just do enough good things, and then you will have eternal life. But the commandment here that is spoken of and what Jesus has been proclaiming throughout John's gospel is that the gospel says, believe and receive eternal life. The law says, do this and you will have life. The gospel says, live and now do this. 
And we see this is why the Son came. To perfectly reveal the work of the triune God, to accomplish the work of salvation, and to proclaim His gospel that He has fulfilled it all. He has obeyed the Father's commandment perfectly. He's accomplished redemption for His people. And He has gained and earned eternal life for us. And so as we close now and try to begin to make application about this passage, we must see this this morning. That as we zoom out and look at this passage, we see that the purpose of our Lord's first coming was to bring salvation. The purpose of our Lord's first coming was to bring salvation. That we can say with the Apostle Paul, today is the day of salvation. Our Lord has not returned yet. Even though some people are trying to say that He has returned, right? Some of you know what I'm talking about. He has not returned. He is yet to come. And this is important for us because this is the message that we proclaim. In His patience and in His kindness, our Lord has not yet returned. That Christ was sent into the world to save sinners. And so what we proclaim is what we call the free offer of the gospel. The free offer of the gospel. That all who would put their faith in Christ and turn from their sin and darkness will be saved. Anyone and everyone who would hear the message of Christ and put their faith in Him would be saved. What do we read in Isaiah 51? Come, everyone who thirsts, everyone who recognizes their need, come to the waters, the waters of living water, the fountain of eternal life, even he who has no money. <laughs> he who has no money. In, nothing in my hand I bring, right? That's what we sing. Nothing in my hand I bring. Our works are as filthy rags. We cannot bring anything before the Lord that we might be acceptable before Him. But what does Isaiah say? Come, buy, and eat. And that's our message. Come, drink of Christ, eat of Christ, and all His benefits. Come, have your sin forgiven, have your guilt removed, have your conscience cleansed. The world walks around with its conscience burdened and carried down by the weight of sin and guilt. And our Lord says, come. Come receive forgiveness. Come receive your conscience cleansed. The worst thing that you've ever done that no one knows about, He knows. And yet, He extends mercy. (laughs) That Christ died for sinners like you and I. That is why He came, was to save. He's not surprised by our sin. He's not surprised by my sin. He came in order to save us from our sins. And He says, come, today is the day of salvation. Come and rest on Christ alone. Don't spend your money on that which is not bread. (laughs) Don't spend your money on that which does not satisfy The Lord extends His grace. He extends His kindness. He extends His mercy in the free offer of the gospel. But as we've seen, the world sees the patience and the kindness of God. And instead of coming, the world mocks. The world mocks, rejecting the message and hardening their hearts. 
as we said, using the patience of God, the fact that he has not returned. What does Second Peter say? Is he ever going to come? You know, he hasn't come yet. He's surely not going to come. Therefore, I can live however I want. There's no consequences. There's no ultimate judgment. The world mocks and uses God's patience as a license for their sin. They say, we don't need the light. We don't need the one that was sent from God. We don't need to be reconciled to our creator and sustainer. We don't need God. We don't need salvation. We don't have any problems. And I think for us in this room, and really the church at large, this can be very discouraging and disheartening, right? We see the world around us rejecting the message of the gospel. And maybe we're even seeing in our day more than we've seen in the last probably 50 to 100 years, people outright turning from the Lord and rejecting the message of salvation. And I think we can think to ourselves, what is the point? Why are we even proclaiming this message? Why are we here proclaiming this message of salvation? It can be discouraging. It can be disheartening. And we can say to ourselves, what is the point? But I think as we see in our passage this morning, and as we look at what the rest of the scripture has to say, this is why we pray for the lost. This is why we proclaim the gospel of Christ. This is why we preach the word of God, that by God's grace, the light of the gospel of Christ would shine in and penetrate the darkened heart. That as we sang this morning in And Can It Be, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night until the, the diffusing ray of Christ broke in and the dungeon flamed with light, right? This is what we are praying for. This is what we are asking, that by God's grace, the light of the gospel would penetrate the dungeon of our hearts, that God's people would be saved, right? That the sheep would be welcomed into the fold, that they would be brought into the church where they are gathered, protected, and preserved, where they would be matured in their faith and grown in godliness and holiness, no longer walking in the dark. This is why we proclaim what we proclaim. Today is the day of salvation. But I think undergirding this all, and our final point this morning, what's undergirding all this, what, why can we have confidence in the proclamation of our message, right? Why can we have confidence as the gospel is proclaimed, even when people are rejecting it in massive numbers? Why do we have confidence as we preach the word, as we try to disciple people? What's the, what's the confidence that we have? The confidence that we have this morning is that Christ has accomplished the work of salvation. That Christ has accomplished the work of salvation and he will lose none of all that is given him by the Father. He will lose none of all that is given him by the Father. He has fulfilled the Father's commandment. He is the one mediator between God and man, the prophet, priest, and king of God's people. And this is so important for us to understand. I was really helped by this quote this morning. Why is it so important that Christ came as our prophet, priest, and king? We confess that this morning. Why do we need 
to remember that. I was helped by this quote. It's, a, it's a, in a book called The Sum of Saving Knowledge. It's written by David Dixon and James Durham, Puritans. They were writing a summary of the Westminster Standards, and they said these words about the, the necessity of Christ as prophet, priest, and king. They say this, For the accomplishment of this covenant of redemption and making his people partakers of the benefits of the covenant of grace, Christ was clad with this threefold office of prophet, priest, and king. He was made a prophet to reveal saving knowledge to his people and to persuade them to believe and obey the same. He was made a priest to offer up himself a sacrifice once for all, to intercede continually with the Father, making his people acceptable to him. And he was made a king to subdue them to himself, to feed and rule them by his appointed ordinances, and defend them from all their spiritual enemies." (laughs) Christ is our prophet, priest, and king. He reveals God to us. He is the offering for us, once for all offered. And he is our king who defends us, redeems us, and protects us from all spiritual enemies. This is why Christ came. This is the confidence we have this morning in the proclamation of the gospel and the promises of God. That's our confidence this morning. What God says is true. The promises of God are yes and amen in Christ. One last thing this morning. I was reading last night with our children in Pilgrim's Progress, and there's this great story, this book written by John Bunyan. Christian and hopeful are on the journey to the celestial city. And at one point, they wander off the road, they wander off the path, and they come to be captured by a giant who's called Giant Despair. And he takes them to a castle called Doubting Castle. Okay? So they wander off the path, and they're led to despair and doubt. And they're beaten up by this giant. They're imprisoned in a cell and they're left for dead. And he tells them the only way you're going to get out is if you drink this poison and take your own life. They're despairing, they're doubting, they're beaten up, they're in prison. And I think that's how we can feel in the Christian life sometime when everything around us seems to be going wrong. And so Christian and hopeful are laying there, they're doubting, they're in despair until Christian remembers that he has a key in his bosom that can open every door and every lock in Doubting Castle. And the key is called the key of promise. (laughs) The key of promise opens the door to every despair, every doubt. That's what can open the door in our lives, right? When we're doubting, when we're despairing, when we see the world around us in unbelief, we remember the promises of God. That he will do what he says he will do. He will save his people. He will bring us to glory. And that's our confidence this morning. The, the promises of the triune God. So let's remember that and let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for in the fullness of time sending your son who came and accomplished everything that we could not that in our sin we were helpless and we were without hope in the world. 
And in the fullness of time, you sent your son to accomplish redemption before us. And even though this morning, in many ways and in many aspects, we are tempted to despair, we're tempted to doubt. And we pray, Lord, this morning that by the power of your spirit, you would help us to take hold of the key of promise that we might open the dungeon of the castle of despair and doubt, and we might walk free back to the path of life. That we need your help this morning. We cannot do this of our own strength. May we rest in the promises of God this morning, and may we receive Christ and all his benefits by faith as we rest on him alone for salvation, as he is revealed to us in the gospel. We know that this can only happen by the work of your spirit. And so we come now relying on you to work and save and change your people. We pray all these things in Christ's name. Amen.